0: New York Times best-selling author Robert Venditti broke into comics the old-fashioned way by starting out in the mailroom. In this episode of Amuse, Robert talks about those humble beginnings and will also discuss his freshman effort into comics entitled Surrogates, which was quickly optioned for a feature film starring Bruce Willis and Ving Rhames. Joining the conversation as co-host is Dan Curtis, co-owner of Zeppelin Comics, and I'm your host, Stefan Schultz, and this is Amuse. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. You're calling in from Atlanta, Georgia. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. Yes, I live about an hour north of the city, kind of up in the foothills of the Appalachians.
0: Cool. And Dan, thank you very much for arranging this wonderful interview. You're welcome. So I'd like to start off, Robert, with kind of your uh, origin story. The majority of our guests at least in the comic world, can identify like an early childhood interest in comics. You, however, said um, on, your, on your website, you just kind of perused them up at the barbershop. Um, you have kind of a unique introduction into the comic industry, and it reminds me of the, the urban legend of Steven Spielberg, who um, at a teenage, Steven snuck into Universal. This is the legend anyway. And basically found a vacant office, squatted, and started doing work. Um, The reality of that story you can find uh, debunked on Snopes.com and but I particularly like uh, the way one writer from the website says that Steve changed the mundane reality into romantic myth. Now your origin story has the reality of your origin story has kind of a similar vibe to it. Can you take us through that.
1: Yeah, I actually refer to myself as the Steven Spielberg of comics. So it's funny you bring that up. (laughs) Excellent. Um, (laughs) You're not the only one. (laughs) Um, No, I actually had never heard that story. Uh, That was the whole roller coaster of myth there for me because I went through the believing phase and then into the Snopes phase and it it, it all happened from birth to death right there. (laughs) Um, So, no, I had never heard that story. But, yeah, um, my story, I did not – grow up reading comics um i'm not you know looking back on it it seems crazy that i did because there's so much about it that so obviously would have appealed to me um but you know i had older brothers that did and my only interaction with them really was uh like i like you had said at, at the barber shop i remember some comics that they were there and i'd flip through them like unknown soldier or something like that and sometimes my father would you know We'd be at the grocery store, there'd be the spinner rack outside, and one of our brothers, you know, was always reading comics, and so he would buy some books for them, and for me, he would buy, like, Tarzan or something, because I like to watch the black and white Tarzan movies on TV and, mm-hmm. and things like that. for me, when I was younger, what I was really into was animation, uh, super big into Tom and Jerry and Droopy and uh, Looney Tunes, and not so much the Hanna-Barbera stuff, Um it didn't resonate to me the same way as those other things did. I think maybe because those were cartoons, you know, that originally played before movies and for adult audiences and they had a humor that was sort of more sophisticated than, you know, Scooby-Doo or things like that, you know? Um, So my earliest, you know, sort of ambition at at a very, very young elementary age was to be an animator. Uh, There would have been, no higher purpose in life than to draw Bugs Bunny cartoons, you know. Um, And I had all the animation books. You know, my my parents would try to buy me, not all of them, but my parents would try to buy me animation books and pencils and things. And I could tell at a very young age that I sucked at it, you know. (laughs) And so um, I I started writing stories um, at a very young age, you know, second grade, third grade. And they were always very, very... Descriptive, and I think you know. Looking back, what I was attempting to do with those earliest stories was literally draw with words. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was trying to describe in words what I could not make my hands draw, and I abandoned, you know, drawing at that age, and and have been writing stories ever since, um, all through, you know, middle school. Uh, English was always my favorite subject. In high school, I took creative writing. I went on to college and uh, majored in English because at the time when I was at the University of Florida, they didn't have a creative writing major, but I majored in English with a creative writing focus and uh, got a you know graduate degree in, in creative writing and, and all those things. Um, writing at that point, you know, what people would you know, I'm putting air quotes around this word, but what they would call literary fiction—you know, the stuff that you see in, uh, you know, literary journals and and uh, stuff like that—you know, the, the the line is obviously very blurred. <laughs> you know, literary is is a word that I think people use to not only have things sound more important, but to also maybe degrade genre, you know, as it's as it's classified. Um, I don't look at those distinctions that way. You know, I, I worked in retail at Borders for about 10 years, and it was always a mystery to me why 1984 was shelved in literature and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep was shelved in science fiction. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. The lines are blurred, so it's all just writing. But um, that's the kind of, of stuff that I was doing, submitting to the literary journals and, and all that kind of stuff. And while I was in grad school and actually while I was – Working at Borders, I had a friend who was very into comics. I'm, I'm still friends with them, and uh, he was always we, we worked in the back room together, you know, unboxing the books and getting them ready to, for people to stock and stuff like that. So it's pretty much me and him talking across the table for eight hours a day, breaking down boxes and stuff. And uh, he was always trying to get me to read comic books. And <laughs> this is you know late '90s, and I do not read comic books you know i am going to write literature you know like the, if if everybody can remember what the what the times were like back then and i never read any of the stuff he told me about until one day he told me about uh the story called uh confession there was an arc in, in the book astro city and as he's explaining to me for for people who don't know or if you guys don't know it's a story about a a superhero who used to be a priest Uh, had a moment of temptation with the woman the woman was a vampire and bit him so he's now a vampire but he still wears sort of priestly garb as his costume and crosses and things even though they burn him because they remind him of that moment and you know he sort of uses that to drive his heroism and there was something about that idea that as my friend was describing it to me just really kind of hooked me and sounded for again lack of a better word very literary you know all the, the things that i was learning in creative writing classes was to write character driven fiction and you know all these kinds of things and here was a story he was describing to me that was very genre in the sense that it was superhero and capes and and all of this but it was so character focused you know so i went and i read that story and i loved it and then i went and got every single issue of astro city i could find back issues and things and read all of those um and really loved them and was kind of like you know what am i going to do next and i went into a complex store was just kind of looking around and it was very intimidating because you know it's superman number 8075 million and you know <laughs> spider-man number six billion and it's like where do you even have an entry point and so alex ross had drawn all the covers for astro city and he had – I'm looking through the racks, and I see a, a, a story that has a number one on it, and I could tell it was Alex, uh, Alex Ross's art. Alex Ross' art. Alex Ross, that's a great name, right? <laughs> but I could tell it was Alex Ross's art. That's his and knockoff it was Tom, brand. <laughs> yeah. It was uh, Tom Strong number one. So America's Best Comics had just kind of started up around the same time. And so here was this line of books, Tom Strong, Promethea, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh Tomorrow Stories, I think one of them was called, um, that were all uh, brand-new number ones. And so I, I started picking them up, and I was like, wow, this Alan Moore guy is pretty good. Like, I wonder what mm-hmm. else he's written, you know? Oh, he wrote something called Watchmen? I'll go read that, you know? And it was literally just me looking for number ones. Um, that was how I kind of found Alan Moore, and, and by that point, had decided that writing comic books was what I wanted to do. Now why it never dawned on me as somebody who wanted to draw that then became a writer why it never dawned on me to be enjoying a medium that was writing with an art component to it I have no idea it seems like a dot that any idiot would connect you know but (laughs) I did not until I was at that age and so um, wanting to write comics not knowing how to get into it by this point I was living in Atlanta there was a publisher based here called Top Shelf Productions they're very well known now as the publishers of Blankets by Craig Thompson. They published a lot of Nate Powell's early works. Jeffrey Brown. Most recently, they've you know won the National Book Award for uh, March, which is you know book uh, co-written by John Lewis uh, with Arpa and Nate Powell, and, and also written by Andrew Aydin. They're a very well-known publisher now. Back then, they weren't. They were just a publisher who happened to be local in Atlanta. And uh, there was an event in the industry at the time. Where uh, a distributor was going bankrupt, and they were Top Shelf's distributor, and it kind of left Top Shelf hanging on a lot of past due invoices, and so the printer dues were built, were the printer bills were due, and the money wasn't coming in because the the, the distributor went bankrupt, and so Top Shelf sort of sent out this email, uh, saying, "We really need people to order." You know, if we get 50 people to order $20 of the books or whatever, we can get through this time. And they ended up having this massive outpouring where they got over 1,000 orders, I think, in 24 hours. And I was still working at Borders, fresh out of grad school, didn't have any money. I called them up and said, I can't buy any books, but I have tons of warehouse experience. I've worked in warehouses, you know all kinds of different things throughout my life. And, you know, I'm, I work in the warehouse right now, at borders. So I know how to handle books. I'd be happy to come volunteer and pack orders and things. And, uh, I thought I'd be going to like some corporate tower and, you know, of a publishing magnate. and They'd have like, you know, a pack and ship okay. floor or something, but I, it was the garage at the publisher, Chris Starros's <laughs> house. And, uh, wow. I started packing boxes. Uh, by the end of that first day, he could tell I knew how to handle a tape gun, uh, <laughs> as promised. And they hired me that day, and I became the first employee that Top Shelf had ever hired. Jeez. And that was my entryway into the industry and ended up being just such an amazing opportunity because, you know, I know it sounds like a box packing job, but I started doing conventions. I started calling retailers and doing sales. You know, I was helping edit books as they came in, and I really learned about every facet of the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, the retail end, the publishing end, the printing end, as well as me already wanting to be a creator. And so it was really this this vast wealth of information I was able to get and knowledge that I was able to get uh, that has really helped me throughout my career on the more professional side of things as opposed to just a creative end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I worked for Top Shelf for about 10 years as well, so uh, – that was a pretty long answer. Yes. You know, you might have some follow-ups, so and I'll cut excellent. it off That
0: was excellent. I do. The, 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 well, you literally worked in the mailroom, which is excellent. So, the my 100% first...
1: true. Take that Steve Spielberg. <laughs> yeah. Um, He's a hack.
0: <laughs> so my my first question was there uh, intent in you you're calling them and saying i can help out in the in the warehouse and then the second part would be was there a a name that you said so and so um you know name drop you uh, so you could get in the door literally
1: no uh i knew nobody in the industry at all in any capacity there was no name that i could drop you know it was merely i i live i live near you (laughs) and i can come help you pack boxes and i've worked in a warehouse you know, um, so as far was there as did intent, I have intent?
0: In, in you say, this is my foot in the door uh, to the to the comic industry.
1: Yes and no. So for me, um, you know, I'm a blue collar guy. You know, uh, my family members are construction workers and electricians and they lay tile. You know what I'm saying? And so I wasn't afraid to work in a warehouse. i had done it plenty in my life. I actually quite enjoy uh, real warehouses where there's like 100 people and you, you know it's like if, if you, a, a well run warehouse everybody gets their job done but everybody's also enjoying themselves you know what I mean you're having mm-hmm. fun this was not that it was just me in a garage I was the only guy packing the boxes <laughs> but um, yes I did have intent in the sense that here was an opportunity for me to get involved in the community somehow and maybe learn some things I didn't go in there pack a couple boxes and then start pumping the guy for information or anything mm-hmm. like it was a job and I knew the job that had to be done, and I did it. And uh, it was months and months later before we ever even talked about anything creatively. And that was when Chris and I would drive to conventions. You know, we would load everything into a a passenger van. And every convention we did, except San Diego, was we drove. We drove to Philadelphia. We drove to New York. We drove to Chicago, Charlotte, Orlando. Columbus, Ohio. Everywhere, right? So, a lot of hours in the car, talking about things and story. And you know, mm-hmm. Chris and I had a lot of the same things that we liked about story. And uh, you know, he, I think, not not to put words for him, but I think he kind of could relate to me in some extent because before Chris got into comics, he was he worked for Lockheed Martin as an engineer, so he wasn't someone who had grown up with comics either. You know, Mm -hmm. so I think we kind of related to each other in that way. So, yes, I did have intent and I remember driving home. I was actually I had an application in to be a school teacher uh, to move back to Florida and teach. And uh, that was sort of the plan for my wife and I. And I remember that first night after I packed boxes, I stayed and packed probably 12 hours that first day, you know, Mm. Uh, and packing boxes in that garage. And I remember driving home that night and calling my wife and saying, I don't know that I'm good enough to write comic books but working with chris even just today i can tell that he's like a really good dude and he's a stand-up guy and um you know i volunteered but he insisted on paying me and hiring me and asking me when i could come back and these things and i I said I, i feel like he's somebody that um i can learn a lot from and by the end of this if I end up not being good enough to be a comic writer, I'm going to know that answer. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if this is going to be some path to success. I know it's going to be my path to finding out. I think it can be my path to finding out mm-hmm. because this 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 cry for help that he put out for orders. I mean, I was packing boxes for you know Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore and like <laughs> like all these people in mm-hmm. the industry were coming out you know and and ordering you know, stuff from him. And I could tell this must be somebody who's the books he publishes are very highly regarded because everybody's coming on board to help him out like this. And so, um, you know, that was, a there was intent there. Yes. I hoped that it would lead to things, but I never looked at it as that it was always a job first yeah. and me being a creator second, because I was sort of raised with that blue collar ethic that somebody's paying you to show up and do a job it's your responsibility to do that job and earn that money honorably and not use it as an opportunity to, you know, horse around with your friends and, and do whatever, you know. So, I'm sure that gave you uh, some street cred and, and respect from him. Uh, yeah, no, he. Uh, I remember him taking me down to the garage after we'd sort of talked for a few minutes, and he was going to show me how to pack a box, you know, and he was very, very methodical about it. This is how you use the tape gun. This is how you tape things together. This is how you make sure things are out of the corner so they don't get dented. And in my head, I'm like, if this dude's going to be like this all day, I'm going to strangle him because I've <laughs> packed about 5 billion boxes in my life. And like, like I used to work at a, at a warehouse in Miami um, back when Barnes and Noble's, well, I mean, the warehouse was, was a CD and record distributor for the entire Southeast US my job was they would hand me a thing and say there is a Barnes and Noble opening in such and such city pull the entire order for their opening day music department and it would be like three pallets of compact discs <laughs> you know what i'm saying oh. so it's like i don't need you to show me how to pack a box <laughs> dude you know <laughs> and uh but he was great about it you know and, and uh you know i still get people today um that when i see them they'll be like you know, retailers and things. I'll meet, I'll see them somewhere. They'd be like, they'll introduce me. Somebody'd be like, I never had a book come damaged from this guy. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> not once. You know, and uh, I think it's great. You know, I, I, I think a lot of people over the years. You know, I definitely have people say, "How did you get your start at a convention?" and you know, I'll start to tell that story and mercifully it will be much less, uh, detail because you're at a convention floor. But as soon as I say, I started out in a warehouse, their eyes just kind of roll. And it's like, you know, I don't pack boxes. Yeah, I'm an artist. These hands were
2: meant for other work.
1: <laughs> yeah. And in my head, I'm just, I could, okay. And a year later, that same person will be coming around with the same portfolio, you know, and it's, everybody kind of does it their own way. And that was the way that I did it. And I think there are definitely people who probably judge me differently, because I don't have, you know, I don't know, some Ivy League writing degree, or I didn't cut my teeth interning for, you know, a a film director or something. I don't know, you know what I'm saying? But I think there are people who probably have a lesser opinion of me as a writer because of that start. But i I find it. There's nothing that could have been more me <laughs> than to do it that way and, and uh I'm very, very proud of it, you
2: know. Awesome. And I I just want to backtrack for a second because in your origin story you ran over a lot of names. Sure. <laughs> but uh just just like a like a general point of order for those that are interested in top shelf. And when you discussed March and, and said that it was is co-written by John Lewis, that's the late congressman John Lewis. Allen. Really? Yes, yes. I had no idea.
1: Most recently, uh, well, I don't, I'm, I'm mixing up my San Diego's, right? I, I believe it was the last San Diego because we didn't have one this year. They debuted George Takai's book, uh, They Called Us Enemy, which is also a phenomenal book about – true story about Takai's uh, childhood in internment camps oh, uh, during world war ii right. that's that's another book that top shelf has gotten a lot of notor- notoriety for uh, recently very good publisher great books they're the publisher from hell they publish league of extraordinary gentlemen now they just a ton of great things if you're interested in their catalog
2: the book titled from hell not the publisher from hell Thanks for the clarification. correct
1: yeah. that's correct yes. yeah just correct. just yeah. just for the yeah.
2: sake and and also um One of the things I always thought was interesting about Astro City, and you can't see it because we're on an auditory medium right now, but you throw that together and it's atrocity.
1: (laughs) Sounds kind of like Megamind, where he keeps calling it Metrocity when it's like Metro City, you know? (laughs) Uh, I never thought about that, yeah. And back then it was called Kurt Busiek's Astro City. Uh, and I'm still a huge fan of Kerb Ucx work, and I still read Astro City to this day. But he changed it later on uh, to just Astro City. You know, I'm not sure why it started out as Kerb Ucx Astro City, but yeah.
2: If you have the opportunity to put your name at the front of a title, I would say go for it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if you're
0: that important, Um, I wanted I want to touch a little bit on on the um, uh, the origin still. I get a lot of questions from, I'm in the film industry, I'm a producer video mostly, and I get a lot of questions from uh, up-and-coming filmmakers. Do I need to go to school for film?
1: Sure, yeah. And
0: my answer to that is, no, you don't. But what Mm -hmm. it does do for you, it puts you around like-minded people. And in your case... You didn't go to school. You went to. You got a creative writing degree, but you didn't go to school for that. And you you got yourself into that world around like-minded people, and then you gelled with the other the other person in the in the warehouse with you, and you guys started talking. That's a very kind of similar um, trope that we're hearing from a lot of our guests that they're around like-minded people and they click. So. Um, Can you expand on that a little bit more on people that want to get in the industry? Is education important? What path would you recommend? I know this is a really cliched question, but um, no, no. Yeah. Expand on it a little bit.
1: Yeah. There's, there can even sometimes be sort of a, a schism in the arts, right? Is is formalized art education an asset or a detriment. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, For me, I found it to be an incredible asset for a few reasons. Yes, you're around like-minded people, but also you know that sort of terror that everyone, I think, experiences uh, about sharing their work and having their work critiqued and edited and things like that. When I was in school for writing, there was no choice. The assignment was due. Everybody in my class was going to write it, and when we come back next week, they're going to spend three hours destroying it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yes. And it's very hard to sit through but it's an experience that becomes very necessary because you're never going to write the perfect thing. And then it allows you to sort of not only establish those skills of being able to take criticism, but also being able to give it to others in constructive ways. Because, I mean, I have plenty of not constructive criticism. You know, I mean, my my writing in, in those early creative writing classes, you know, I don't know if any of you have been in any arts classes or, or whatnot, but mm-hmm. you know you have the people in there who are trying to figure things out and aren't very good, and then you have people in there who already have all the answers, and they are merely gracing this classroom with their presence <laughs> so they can get their MFA and go on to be Ernest Hemingway. You know what I'm saying?
2: Yes, because you can't be Ernest Hemingway
1: without an MFA. Correct, yes. <laughs> There's a requirement. I, was, I was very much the former you know I did not have it all figured out and in the beginning I found the people who proclaimed to have it all figured out very intimidating and they would destroy my stories and there was no there was not even tact or decency or manners about it you know what i mean and very early on i learned i'm in this class because i don't have it all figured out right it's art. I'm never going to have it all figured out. And the fact that you think you have it all figured out makes you the least right. figured out person there is. Cause you don't even know what you don't know. Yes. Like at least I know I would write a story and turn in a story. that was nothing but exposition, no dialogue just to see if I could do it and they would destroy <laughs> it. And then I would turn in a story that was nothing but dialogue, no exposition just to see if I could do it and they would destroy it. But it was like, I'm not here to write a story for the New Yorker. I'm here to build up my muscles Mm -hmm. (laughs) and put in the reps and challenge myself and get outside my safe zone. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know what ever became of any of those other writers. I don't know. You know, I don't, to my knowledge, none of them wanted to go write comics. Some of them may be very successful. I have no idea. Um, But to me, arts education was great for all of those things. And it kept me around like-minded people. Is it an absolute necessity? Of course not. You know, there's plenty of people who succeed in the arts without arts education. For me, it was the path that I took. I knew I wanted to be like around like-minded people. So I took creative writing classes in college. I knew I wanted to be around books. So I, when I had to get a job, I worked in book retail and was I writing? No. But was I learning how to distill an entire story into two sentences to sell it to somebody? Yep. Was I learning what make, covers work and what make covers not work yep you know was i learning the retail side of the business and what it's like to actually have to sell this god awful thing that i'm going to write and impose upon people to sell you know what i mean (laughs) yes i was learning all those things and i was around people who liked books and read books and some of them wanted to be in the arts you know and when i went and worked in the warehouse at top shelf and would go do conventions i was around like-minded people so yes i think all of that is is a huge thing um You you know, Mm -hmm. you can't just write the stuff and stick it in a drawer. Nothing's ever going to happen. You know, so you got to be around like-minded people somehow. And if you're like me, and you grew up in a family that didn't even really have a lot of readers, (laughs) much (laughs) less any writers. you got to go find a way to get to those like-minded people. Mm-hmm. And that's not me casting aspersions against my family. You know, <laughs> and my mother, my mother was a huge reader. She was always putting books in my hands. You know, my friends that I hung out with and they're still my friends to this day, all these years later. Uh, one of my best friends has never read a single thing I've written. He's like, it's a book dude. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't read books, you know, <laughs> but like when the movie, when the Surrogates movie came out, he went and watched that, you know, and it's like, it's, <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Different um, medium. Yeah,
2: right. yeah. Well, and yeah. Let's, let's backfill in that since you brought up surrogates. It'd be helpful that people understand. I that. didn't step on that segue. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> He's notorious for stepping on my segues and, like, <laughs> jumping in with his own questions when I see perfect opportunities. So, anyway, if you would, please expound upon the fact that you are the creator of that story.
1: Uh, co-creator, right, with Brett Wellley, the artist. But yes, when I was, uh, and Brett Wellley did everything—penciled, inked, drew—and I mean, colored and even lettered it. So it's just—it was just him and I. You know, going back up to the origin story a little bit, I started working for Top Shelf. I was in their warehouse. Um, I had this idea for Surrogates, uh, which, for people who don't know, and judging by the box office uh, failure of the movie, most of you don't. Surrogates is about people who sort of live their lives through android substitutes. This is a a story that I wrote in 2004 and was published initially in 2005, pre-social media, pre-Facebook, as far as I know, pre-any of that kind of stuff, and it just sort of visualized if the Internet was real, right, the way that you can change these sort of basic defining characteristics of people that we sort of adhered to for centuries, uh, you know, race, gender, age, all these kinds of things. If there was a technology that allowed you to sort of tailor make yourself however you wanted to be the way that the internet allowed you to sort of create a persona for yourself and everybody lives through these machines what would that world be like and so that's kind of what that story is and so i I wrote it as you know working full-time at borders also working a second full-time job in the warehouse at top shelf so i'm working about 40 hours a week at both places and then writing at night i uh put together this story and i i said to Chris, uh, the editor at Top Shelf, you know, look, I don't want this to get weird. You know, you guys publish blankets and, you know, black and white autobio comics and things like that. This isn't material you do. So don't think that if you don't publish this, I'm going to quit my job or something. That's not what this is. But you are a good editor, and if you read it and you think it's worthy, maybe you can introduce me to somebody at Dark Horse or, you know, oni or or what have you you know and he was like yeah absolutely you know it was just a five issue miniseries so he read it and he really really liked it uh, actually i wrote it in 2002 i'm sorry not 2004 he read it and he really really liked it he said you know we've always wanted to do something that was a little more mainstream i can totally introduce you to all those other publishers they'd all be great places for your book probably even a better fit for your book but if you want to do it here we'd love to do it you know and i said uh that would be great, you know. That would take a lot of the unknowns out of the publishing process. I know how you work, and I know who you are, and how you put books together. And mm-hmm. the reality is, it's my first book. Nobody's going to buy this. I want it to be published. I want it to be a quality book, and I want to use it as a resume piece that will help me get more work. That's all that's going to happen from this thing, <laughs> you know. Absolutely. And uh, so I, the whole story was written. You know, I, I can't remember when exactly Brett Weldley came on board but it took a while. Um, and then the first issue came out in 2005 and I was at Comic-Con that year in San Diego and I had just set up the entire booth, uh, you know, which is like, I don't know, six pallets of books or whatever. So we could work the booth for the convention and run back to the hotel and gotten showered and cleaned up so that I could be back in time for preview night to open and be behind the booth to do my job. And the doors open and within 10 minutes, Hollywood producers were coming up to me and asking me if the film rights were available because are you they are had serious re- I'm dead serious wow. yeah and so because they had read about the book on uh, comic book resources or seen it in Wizard magazine and you know it had gone out to a lot of these sort of more mainstream outlets and the response coming from them was all very positive you know right. Rumor did a full page on it and Wizard gave two pages to it Comic book Resources did a, a big long interview with me about it it was the most surreal thing in the world, you know, because literally I had just been packed. I would have to stop them and be like, take money from somebody buying a book, <laughs> you know, <And> like <laughs> that wasn't my book. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, Hopefully it like- was one of those
0: university critics that was telling you that all your work was. <laughs> yeah, fine. maybe. Yeah. I'll sell maybe, you one yeah. of my books after I talked to this Hollywood producer. Yeah. Well, yeah. For, um,
2: for people that haven't been to conventions, it's insanity. Yeah. And when you work behind the table, it's,
1: well, you're yeah, just getting I mean, it left, right, and center. Yeah. There's ins- there's insanity, but then there's preview night at San Diego Comic-Con insanity, right? Like, yeah. it's a whole other level of insanity. That's steroids, for sure. Yeah. Jeez. So, it was a long process and went through, you know, a lot of different things that we can certainly talk about if you guys like. Yeah, but- I'd love to.
0: I think there's a few things we need to put in perspective. You mentioned borders a couple times. In the old days, there used to be these brick-and-mortar shops where you'd have to go sell <laughs> books yeah. and buy books and so
2: in the old days there used to be printed <laughs> printed words on yeah, paper. yeah. and then yeah. the
0: other thing is the surrogates ended up you we, we continue with that uh ving rames and bruce willis start in that and i'd love to talk to a little bit more about the the right yeah we can do that for sure can, or yeah. do you have another well follow up?
2: i i mean on the surrogates topic of all the various near futures somewhat matrix We're plugged in and living our lives semi-virtually remotely. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, much like this year, <laughs> but it's, it makes like the least logistic sense that we would have human-like robots running around looking like us, but it's absolutely the most plausible. That's just the way we are, especially here in the U.S., we would absolutely want the best representation of us meeting up with the best representation of everybody else. And not even, maybe best representation isn't accurate because it's not an accurate representation. So it's Bruce Willis with hair. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It doesn't even have to be that, right? Like the the story, this is different from the film. The film very much leaned into the, if you will, plastic surgery aspect of it, you know, Mm -hmm. that everybody would just do this to look as hot as they could possibly look or whatever. Right. There was one character in all of the books and all in the entire series. There was one character that had a surrogate purely for a visual attractiveness reason. Right. The main character is a police officer who has one and it's like a bulletproof vest. He can go out and do his job and not have to worry about getting shot. And when he comes home, he puts it away and he's himself, you know, there's uh, a person who has one because they're disabled. You could have one because you want to skydive and you want to feel like you're skydiving and get all the sensations of it but not have to worry about the chute opening. You could be a diabetic who just wants to eat chocolate. You could want to smoke cigarettes and not get lung cancer. You know, you, There's all these reasons why, and I really tried to populate the book with all of that variety to make it feel... It's a very grounded future story. Like It's a, my sort of guiding principle for it is I want it to be just like the world that I live in right now, except everybody's living through a robot. I didn't want flying cars and, you know, aliens and, you know, I think sometimes you can just have so much stuff in the pot that it just sort of breaks under its own weight. I wanted it to be everything just like now, but I changed this one thing, and what does that mean? What does it do to kids? What does it do to parents? What does it do to marriages? What does it do to jobs? You know, uh, in in an industry like the airline industry where women are discriminated against as being pilots. Does a woman go get a pilot that looks like a man so she can be a pilot? And is that actually okay because the woman is a pilot now? Or does that make it even worse because she's only a pilot because people think that she's a man? You know what I mean? Like all these complex questions, and I don't answer any of those in the story. I just sort of present them and let readers talk about them themselves. And one of the things that I thought was really cool was even now to this day – it doesn't happen as often, but it still happens that I'll have somebody reach out to me. and want to talk about me because they're writing a thesis in their, you know, technology class about surrogates or, you know, a couple of years ago I was invited to South by Southwest to sit on a panel with other futurists mm. and talk about stuff like that. And, Excellent. you know, it, it's mentioned in books that futurists write, they'll talk about it or professors will teach it in their classroom and things. And, you just have to think about somebody like me who comes from the background that I do and legitimately just wanted to publish a book with the hope that he would have a printed thing he could show to editors and maybe get more work. <laughs> to have that happen is just mind-boggling. you know. And you know, we went to the movie, and I walked my wife down the red carpet, and somebody who lived at McMurdo Station in Antarctica sent me a photo of himself holding that book, which means that my book – is literally on all seven continents of the planet. <laughs> I'm someone who never went out of the state of Florida growing <laughs> up. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Like, And I'm doing a three-week book tour through six different countries in Europe talking to people about my book translated in their languages. Like, It's unfathomable, you know? And it's very humbling. If nothing else ever happened to me but that... Uh, what a career I would have had, you know, but Mm -hmm. fortunately I've been able to go on and, and do other things. And I think people know me now probably as the guy who writes Hawkman or, or Exo man of war, green lantern. And they don't even know that I did surrogates, you know? Um, would you say
0: that surrogates is, is the defining moment for you in your career that, that, that was the switch that clicked?
1: Yeah, I don't think I would. Um, No, uh, surrogates came out and, you know, the book sold well and whatever. And the movie wasn't like some big juggernaut, you know, it wasn't like walking dead or something. Mm-hmm. And the movie came out in 2009 and I really didn't do a whole lot of you know, a comic book work for until 2012. You know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I, this is no joke. Top shelf would always have a big sale in the first couple weeks of September where they would discount their books really heavily and there would be a lot of orders. It was like the September sale. They did it every year. Surrogates came out sometime in December. I want to say it was the 26th maybe or the 16th. I can't exactly remember. But um, I packed boxes, Mm -hmm. sent them out to retailers, got on a plane with my wife, went out to L.A. for three days, went to the premiere, came back, and that Monday I was back in that warehouse packing boxes again. I think a lot of people would have something like that happen and say, that's it, I made it. Mm -hmm. I'm quitting my job, Mm -hmm. you know. Having seen the grind behind the scenes of publishing and what it takes to really get a career going, Surrogates was great. It helped me get out of, you know, pay some bills and, and buy a car and put a little money away for a rainy day or what have you, but... I knew that this isn't it. I'm not going to go be famous, and I'm not a writer now. Mm -hmm. And if I want to be able to manage my career in a way that I don't have to take a job just to keep the lights on, then I'm still going to keep my job. (laughs) And I'm going to write. I'm going to keep writing and doing that too. But until I get to a point where I know that all my bills are paid and my responsibilities are met and I'm taking care of my wife and my children and all these kinds of things because that's the way that I can make sure that I'm only doing the projects that I want to do. Not projects that I have to do. You know, mm-hmm. I don't have any skeletons in my closet. I certainly have projects that didn't come out the way that I wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, and everything I've ever written could be better than it is, as is the case with everything. But there's nothing that I hide from. You know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. nothing like I hope nobody ever finds out I did that. You know what <laughs> I'm saying? Um, but I really needed to pay rent that week. You know, I kept kept working at Top Shelf, and didn't really do a whole lot of comics. But what did happen with Surrogates is Warren Simons who is now an editor, uh, the editor-in-chief of Bad Idea, but at the time was the editor starting up Valiant when Valiant was coming back. I had met him years ago and given him a copy of The Surrogates. And in 2011, when he's looking for people to reach out to, he read The Surrogates and was like, he reached out to me and asked me if I would pitch. And uh, I did, and I ended up getting Exo Man of War, which ended up being the, the first title that Valiant launched with when they came back. And it was very well-received. It was my first monthly comic book I'd ever written. I did it for 56 issues. Um, It was was well-received. Valiant became successful and is still around now even though the company sold and all those kinds of things. And I think that was probably more of a watershed moment for me because I don't in reality think that a lot of editors at DC or Marvel or anywhere else read surrogates and knew me from that. But when everybody read Exo Man of War, that's when they started reaching out to me, you know. And that was really kind of when I got to be busy and I started writing Green Lantern. And once I started writing Green Lantern, that was when I finally stopped working at Top Shelf because it came to a point where I felt like I can maybe sustain this for a while. And, uh, you know, that was eight years ago. So.
0: Well, I appreciate that answer. Uh, it was almost a rhetorical question, a defining moment, because – um, yeah, you think you'd, you made it and yeah, you can kind of skate. I, I do meet a lot of people that are more interested in the red carpet than the actual process. And I think if you're in love with the process and in love with doing it, you will get to the red carpet. But if your focus isn't just being there, then you're not going to make it because th- there are stories like yours that, yeah, you, hit this, you get this moment where the Hollywood producers are, are w- wanting to adapt your piece of work and you think I've arrived, I don't have to do anything now. And and the next day you said you're back in the warehouse. That's that's awesome. You're rolling up your sleeves yeah. and getting stuff done.
1: Yeah, and the most common question I would get was, now that you've made one, you've had a movie done, do you think you're gonna do another one? And I was like, Now that I've actually seen how it happens, I think I have less chance of doing another one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> there's so many things that have to happen. You know, and it was two thousand six when these producers I'm sorry, two thousand five and these producers are coming up to me. Mm-hmm the thing didn't actually get officially optioned until late 2007, you know, and as far as it getting made, this is no joke. You know, people always say, how do I get my book made into a movie? Yeah. Okay. I'll tell you. So it's optioned. The screenplay gets turned in. And about a week later then after the screenplay got turned in, there was the big strike with the writer's guild in Hollywood okay. that shut down the entire industry. Okay. okay. Yeah. So Bruce Willis, was already, he was just about to get on a plane and go shoot a book called, I mean, a film called Pinkville, uh, directed by Oliver Stone, which was gonna be about the melee Massacre. Okay? Wow. Well, Oliver Stone's in the Writers Guild, so all of Hollywood is shut down now. Hmm. There is not gonna be a Pinkville. Bruce Willis has no movie. Bruce Willis likes sci fi. This script happened to get turned in a week before the shutdown. Bruce Willis is going to be in surrogates. Surrogates is not going to be made. So everybody says to me, how do I get a movie made? I say, make sure there's a writer's strike that shuts down Hollywood. You know what I mean? You like, can
2: orchestrate that. You're in yeah. get a time machine.
1: Like that's absurd, right? Yes. Like, I don't know because I'm not a Hollywood guy. I would imagine that there's maybe five Projects that benefited from the crippling writer strike, you know, <laughs> and mine happened to be one of them. Excellent. You know, so I don't try to shoot that Hollywood target
3: yeah.
1: over and over and over and over again because I see how hard it is. Now, you know, a story that I did in Flash uh, with Van Jensen and, and Brett Booth, uh, you know, the first story that we did when we took over Flash. I only wrote Flash for about twenty issues, but that first story arc. The premise of it and the villain of it was turned into the entire third season of the Flash TV show. I've had other things pop up in places here and there and stuff like that, but I'm never trying to hit that film target unless if I go sit down and write a screenplay. Then I'll be trying to hit a film target. When I sit down and I'm trying to write comics, I'm trying to write comics, and whatever happens after that is fine with me. And I I, I keep coming back to this, and I always fear because I say these things a lot that they sound disingenuous, you know. But I'm. This is just honest, you know. For a blue collar person like myself, coming from the background that I come from, the idea that anybody prints anything that I've ever done, or that anybody to this day, anybody who comes up to me at a convention and asks me for an autograph, or even crazier, somebody recognizes me at an airport or something, every single time, it stuns me. <laughs> <laughs> like it's the most craziest thing to me, you know. Mm-hmm. So every day is a gift, just to be able to write and to be able to support myself doing what I do is is a gift to me and I don't go chasing Hollywood right
0: don't ever lose that sentimentality that's awesome
1: I think I would have by now if I was going to you know it's just kind of the approach that I've that I've always had and how I look at things and throughout my career how I've kind of tried to approach it as far as you know conversations with other creators and helping and it can be a very cutthroat business and you know, there's a lot of politics and a lot of cliques and a lot of internal stuff that happens, and I don't know. I've just never really gotten caught up in those things, and I think it's probably been to the detriment of my career in some ways. But I don't know. I just don't. I just don't look at it that way. For, like I say, for better or for worse. It all you
0: know? depends on how you define success, and if if you're happy at the opportunity to continue writing, and and the end game is not. Uh, feature film screenplay right and you know, that kind of stuff then you're in good company.
1: Having said that, I just want to say if there's any producers listening to this right now, you know, hit me up. You know what I mean? Excellent. I got I got a ton of ideas. I say all this until you put a contract <laughs> <Right>. with money. <laughs> well no but I mean when they did the movie, you know, I had almost no involvement in the film. And that was fine, right? Like, I wrote the story. I told the story the way I told wanted to tell the story. Were it you given sto- the
0: option to do the adaptation? What was the process?
1: No, no. I mean, dude, I was a guy packing boxes in a warehouse. I mean, <laughs> like it looks like it's crazy, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. No, nobody ever asked me to write the screenplay. I was a consultant on the film and things like that. But also, I didn't sit there and demand involvement or any of those kinds of things because, one, I'm a guy packing boxes in a warehouse. You know, you want to go make an $80 million movie – uh, do it the way you want. If mm-hmm. I want to make, if I think I should have input on any $80 movie, I should put up the $80 million, but I'm a little light right now. So, <laughs> you know, you go ahead and you do whatever you think you need to do to make your money back and I'm just going to sit back and enjoy it. You know, there was that aspect of it, but there was also the aspect of, you know, you have a band. You have a band and I've, I've performed a song and you and your band want to do a cover of my song. And I say, that's great, but your version has to sound exactly like my version. Well, why would you want to do that, right? Like you want to bring your own creativity to somehow what inspired you out of my song, right? Yeah. So screenwriters and actors and directors and set designers and costume designers and producers and all these people, they're all creative in their own right. And so if my book inspired them in some way to want to bring their own creativity to it, I would never want to be someone sitting on their shoulder managing their creativity. Mm-hmm. You go make the cover you want to make and and we'll see what happens but for me just to even be a, to have this happen is fine and uh you know you all go do what you want to do and and I'm just going to enjoy the process and and that was what happened you know I visited the set a couple times and I spent more time talking to the trade people like the set builders cuz again I come from a construction hmm. family right and here are people who were building sets that were actual livable homes within warehouses And, like, you plug something into the outlet and the power clicked on and it was the entire interior of a living space with no exterior. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, there was beer in the fridge and there was a roof on it. it, You know, it had everything. And it was just amazing to me, the craftsmen that would put these things together. And, you know, I I worked in a lot of kitchens growing up. And I, I went one day and asked the caterers if I could get up in their truck and watch them work. And the guy was like, what do you want to get in the truck for? And I was like, I don't know, man. It's crazy that you guys are in, like, this converted mobile home motorhome like an rv they had converted the inside to a mobile kitchen and they were cooking like high-end food for 400 people like three times a day. And I was like, how are you even doing that with these five guys? And I mean, like you'd go up and say, can I have orange juice? They'd be like, yep, cut an orange in half and (laughs) and grind your orange juice and hand it to you. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's absurd. If you work in a restaurant, this is crazy. You know? And so I sat in there and I watched them cook for a while. and was just sort of fascinated by it, you know? So I just kind of enjoyed the whole thing.
0: The director's got questions about the uh, dialogue. Where is this, the writer? Oh, he's Mm -hmm. painting the sets in the back with the
1: yeah, sets, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, they never, you know, I read the screenplay and gave some thoughts on it, but when I was on set, I was very much a tourist, you know, nobody was asking me, uh, any of that kind of
0: stuff. Michael Ferris and John Barcano were the screenwriters, yes. and they're a long yes. career team. They worked on the net TV series Married with Children back in the nineties. Couple Terminator films. Um,
1: they also wrote the game.
0: The game, was pretty yeah, awesome. I mean, they, yeah, you look yeah. at their IMDb page, and it's just yeah. uh, you know endless list. Did you know about them at, and their their legacy, or did were you? intimidated by that or were you just like yeah here's my thing anything you want to hear or discuss I'm, i, I never
1: even spoke to them really uh, I, everything i spoke you know the producer would send me the screenplay and i'd talk to the producer and the producer would go talk to them uh, i'm trying to remember if i met them i can't remember i know i met jonathan Mostel because he was on set when i would visit the set and he was at the premiere
3: mm-hmm.
1: i can't recall if i met ferris and broncato um what about v- ving remember. and
0: bruce did you hang out with them
1: I met Bruce, yeah. Uh, (laughs) I met him on the set twice, because I visited the set twice. I saw him at the premiere Mm -hmm. and spoke to him, obviously, very briefly. And There was no, like, we went out to dinner and hung out. It was like a quick (laughs) conversation. You know, hey, hey, Bruce, he's the guy who wrote the book. Oh, hey, how you doing? You know, next take kind of thing. (laughs) Right. I did not get to meet Bing Rames, which I was upset about, because I I loved Pulp Fiction. And uh, when Marsalis Wallace says, you know, you hear that, Billy Boy? I'm not through with you by a damn sight. I'm gonna get medieval on your ass. Like I never laughed so hard <laughs> in the theater in my life. as when that line was delivered, and uh, you know, but he was not. He was not on set uh, the days that I was on set. Mm. Um, I met Roda Mitchell. I met Michael Cudlitz, which was pretty cool. Mm. Uh, so it, you know, he was a very small part in the film. And this was before he went on to do uh, Southland, which he was one of the main characters in the cop show called Southland. And before Walking Dead and all that, he was a really nice guy. I had uh, I talked to him for quite a while. Oh, Boris Kojo. I met Boris Kojo, uh, quite possibly the most attractive human being I've ever been in the presence of.
3: In
1: what uh, way? He's just like a Greek god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I don't know if you know who Boris Kojo is, but uh, he's just a... Hey, uh, he's a handsome man, you know, <laughs> uh, so much so you don't even, you don't even like feel intimidated by it. You're more like, wow, that's cool. I didn't know humans could be like that. You know, <laughs> uh, what a remarkable species. Um, but other than that, I don't recall really, uh, meeting too many other people. I, I recall much more, you know, the, the prop master and, you know, the, the camera guy and, you know, Again, you love the process yeah. and not the red yeah. carpet. That's cool. Yeah, I mean the the prop the prop uh, assistant prop master his name was Curtis Corbett. Um, I talked to him a ton. And it was fascinating, you know. This guy had he'd worked on Mr. and Mrs. Smith, he'd worked on Charlie Wilson's War. He actually made The Book of Secrets from the National Treasure Book of Secrets film, you know? And like mm-hmm. those guys had the best stories, you know. They they cuz they're almost like flies on the wall. And I don't even mean gossip or they're talking trash about
3: people. Right.
1: But, it's such a great view into that reality because they're really there for everything. You know, they don't just walk in for a take or a few takes and then go back to their trailer or whatever. Like they're there the whole day, 12 hour days, you know? And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that, that was cool. And then, uh, I had a long talk in kind of a tour of sorts with Jeff Mann. He was the, uh, he was basically the guy who designed the aesthetic for the film. You know what I mean? And, uh, he had done the Michael Bay transformers movie, and he had done Tropic Thunder, uh, or he might have done Tropic Thunder after this. I can't remember. Um, some of the guys that were on set had just come from filming The Dark Knight, and they were talking about how crazy Heath Ledger's performance was before anybody had seen anything about uh. Heath Ledger's performance. You know, and they were talking about how unnerving it was when he was the Joker. But they were just, you know, the the guy behind the camera, the dolly guy, or whatever. You know yeah. what I mean? So, like, those kind of conversations are the ones that I really. Really remember? Yeah. I went
0: to a Halloween party, invited a prop guy, and I went to his apartment, and he had the couch from Beetlejuice, the um, atmosphere release thing from Total Recall. His house oh, wow. was entirely the props from the films that he because they just he says oh, they just throw them away at the end. They of the do, films. yeah,
1: yeah. The they, um, the special effects guy, his name was Howard Berger from K Effects. I think they'd done a lot of horror things. Oh yeah, and Huge. and his. Second in command. I wish I could remember her name. I could see her face. But she had come from Weta and she had actually was a was a dual citizen of New Zealand because she was over there and did the three Lord of the Rings films and lived there for so long that she became a citizen and like lived there, you know, (laughs) because they filmed those movies back to back to back. She was talking about that, you know, her experience doing that. And uh, but Howard Berger, after the after the film was uh was wrapped, he sent me uh, a pretty cool prop, which is basically the the face of one of the soldier surrogates uh, that's in the film. And um, that was very nice of him to do. But yeah, a lot of those things, I don't know where they end up. I do know that there is a ride somewhere at Disney World where like you're leaving the ride, and they have a surrogates charging bay from the film there and i know that because every once in a while somebody will send me on twitter dude i just rode this ride and here's the thing and then they took a picture of it <laughs> and let me see it yeah Excellent. like yeah so i do know that's out there somewhere but i don't know what happens with a lot of where Bruce Willis's wig went i couldn't tell you
0: <laughs> no there there are some celebrities that are that are doing um, prop auctions and doing charity stuff now cuz i think there was an awareness that a lot of that stuff just gets thrown away and and a lot of movie fans would love to have that For know, sure. in their in their yeah. collections yeah so. Dan, do you have any any questions we kind of got? Of course of I do,
2: because you guys have been talking for like an hour. Sorry me. about that. It's cool. I thought we were going to talk about comic books. You got started about movies. That's the problem with Stefan. It's all about movies.
0: <laughs> this episode of Muse is sponsored by Zeppelin Comics. Located in the heart of historic downtown Benicia, California, Zeppelin Comics is your source for comics, graphic novels, games, and gifts. A comic book store like no other. You can find Zeppelin Comics
2: online at zeppelincomics.com. It was interesting hearing some of the books that you first read and kind of the idea that they were, by and large, published by Vertigo, which is an imprint of DC, and looking at your, your list of works There's a lot of DC titles. Was that a calculation or just the way things ended up?
1: Yeah, no. And I'm thinking back now, and I don't know. You guys might know better than me. But definitely at the time when I started reading, Astro City was an image book. I don't know if DC had bought Wildstorm yet, had they? Was Wildstorm still its own thing? Because America's Best Comics was a Wildstorm imprint. I don't think DC had bought Wildstorm yet because (laughs) – and I'm, I'm piecing this together. I don't know if this is accurate, so I'm just putting this out there. I, I know from you know just sort of general public knowledge that, as it's been reported, Alan Moore and, and D.C. have had a falling out right over the Watchmen rights and things. So I don't think he would have done America's Best Comics with Wildstorm if Wildstorm was already a part of D.C. I think he was doing America's Best Comics, and then Wildstorm sold to D.C., and so it became a D.C. book. You see what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. at the time, when I was reading all those things, I don't think they were D.C. titles. And I wasn't reading anything from the main D.C. universe. Anyways, I think that aesthetically, like growing up, the DC universe just kind of a, appealed to me more in their sort of approach to character, I guess, which is nothing against Marvel. But like for me, not reading comics growing up, you know, my my gold standard of superhero was Christopher Reeve Superman, you know,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and I remember being in the theater and watching Superman, 2 and saying, I'm going to go up one day and write comic books solely to make films. No, I didn't say that. I said... uh, The opposite (laughs) of everything you just got done. (laughs) Yeah. But I I remember being at the age where when General... When he comes out of the particle chamber and he kneels before Zod, in my head, I was like, Superman just lost his powers. What is the world going to do? you know It was such a defining thing for me. And because of that, Superman has always been my favorite superhero. But also I think that... I don't know. I kind of like him. I like the idea that he could do all these things, but he's humble about it you know what i'm trying to say i don't know i just he just always resonated with me i don't know i think my worldview and superman's worldview i guess are kind of similar i would hope but um so i think i kind of gravitated towards dc for that but as far as how i ended up writing for dc simply a matter of they were the first ones really to reach out to me about exo man of war Um, and they were the first ones to ask me to pitch and so that's where i pitched if it had been marvel maybe I would have been writing in marvel all this time you know there's plenty of marvel characters that i that i really do like a lot and, you know over these you know the past years i've become a reader of comic books and and read a lot of different things and classics and stuff like that there's plenty of marvel characters i would love to work on um, it's just dc's where i was, where i've been
2: and there seems to be quite a few titles under dc and some of them are concurrent how many were you
1: doing at one time <sighs> I don't know if I could say. I was always very mindful of not overbooking myself, you know? And I think that goes back to the work ethic thing I was telling you before. Like somebody's paying you to do a job, you make sure you give them their money's worth. I never wanted to be, as Warren Simons put it to me once, and it's really the perfect metaphor, and I use it all the time, so I'll, but I'll credit him for it. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, you know, I never wanted to be the dog that ate so much I threw up on the carpet, you know? <laughs> and I think you see that a lot with young writers when they finally start to get some work. They just they just really start to overbook themselves because – and it's natural, right? Like you've worked so hard to get here, and now everybody wants you to work, and you've got all these offers. You, of course you want to take them on. You're going to find a way to make it work. That was, again, a trap I never really had to fall into in those early years because I had a full-time job. All my bills were met, right? I didn't have to worry about you know, work, 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 work because there will be a dry spell, and maybe this will help me bridge it. I just worked at my own pace, you know, and I, I did Exo Man of War for a few months until I was sure I knew how to write a monthly comic book and turn it in. And then I added another one, which was Demon Knights at DC, you know, and I did Demon Knights for a few months, and then I think I added in Green Lantern, and then Demon Knights ended, and so I was doing Green Lantern and Exo Man of War, and it was just kind of that. I think the most I've ever done in a month was four, and I don't think I'd ever want to do more than that. I've done more than that in one month. You know, I've had months where I've had to sit down for whatever scheduling reason, and write, you know, 200 pages in a month. But it's it's an aberration. You know, I tend to stick to an 80 page workload a month is the max that I like to do because you're not just turning in a script and that's the end of it. You've got revisions, you've got layouts and art, you've got lettering that you have to review. And also, what a lot of people don't realize, and this was particularly something that happened with Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps, which was a double ship book that came out twice a month, it's easy for me to write 20 pages in a month. It's not easy for an artist to draw 20 pages in a month, month after month after month after month. So a lot of times, you may only be writing one series, but you're writing Exo Man of War number four for Carrie Nord, and then you're writing Exo Man of War number five for Lee Garbett and then you're writing number nine for trevor hair and then you're writing number six for lee garbett and then number 10 for Trevor. trevor you know what i mean so you're only writing one book that comes out published a month but you could be writing three scripts in a month for that one book because you're feeding three different artists mm-hmm. if that makes sense you know what i mean in terms of number of titles i've never gone i don't think beyond four because i have to be prepared for when that happens because the writer isn't the most important part of making a comic But I'm the beginning of the train, and until I've done my job, the artist cannot do his job and pay his bills, and the inker can't, and the colorist can't, and the letterer can't. So if I'm held up and I'm blowing deadlines because I overbooked myself, all these other people are not getting the script to do their jobs. If I'm a week late, that's four less pages they're going to draw, which some other artist is going to have to draw instead to get the book to come out on time – and that our team is never going to get those four pages back. I have just cost them a week's pay for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? I try to respect other people's paychecks the same way that I would want them to respect my own. And because of that, I've never I've never overbooked myself, you know.
2: Do you think that that mentality has helped you get even more titles?
1: I don't know. I mean, there's definitely people that and there's people who can handle that workload. I know what my workload can handle to do the quality of work that I like to have and it's four comics a month at the most there are people who can do eight books in a month you know and they're all great jeff lemire is enormously fast he's an enormously fast writer and he's obviously one of the most talented dudes out there you know so like i'm not saying this is a hard and fast rule i just say you have to be aware of what you can handle and stay within it so that you don't overbook i think that there's sort of a, a maxim that a lot of people say there's three things you need to be a writer, you know, you need to be on time, uh, you need to be professional and you need to be good. Mm -hmm. Any two of those three, you can have a career in comics, right? Well, I can't control. Am I good? Good is not up to me. Good is up to the reader. Good is up to the reviewer. Good is up to the audience, but I can't control on time and I can't control professional. Mm -hmm. And so I do be on time and I do be professional and hopefully I'm good too. And I've got all three, you know? So I do think, hitting those deadlines and being professional and all those kinds of things has absolutely helped me, um, you know, with my career and, and, uh, with getting work certainly.
0: Yeah. Coming from a, a broadcast background, deadlines and air times were critical and it didn't matter if it was a great edit, if it was a great camera work, if it's late, it doesn't go on the air and it doesn't do us any good. So yeah, that on time meeting those deadlines is super critical.
2: Well, and having a reputation of being on time. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'd rather have good work and on time than great work and late. And, you know, like you said, you're pushing back all these other artists and all the other people that are involved with the process that now their time frame to do their work is shortened or eliminated and they're either not getting the pay or they're not getting the work or they only have a day to do what they were supposed to do in a week and that's not fair to them.
1: And they can't have the quality they want. And how dare I do that to somebody? You know what I mean? Right, right. And I I also have to be as far ahead of schedule. Like I don't even get schedules from my editors because they know that I'm going to be – I'm going to turn it in two months before they would give me the due date. You know what I mean? (laughs) Because I need to pad that schedule. If I want to take a vacation, You know, if I break my arm, you know what I mean? Uh, I have a family emergency, whatever it is. I have to have that padding built into my schedule, so I'm still not holding up that train. Mm-hmm. You know, I've published over 300 comics and graphic novels at this point. Wow. And I, I want to say, to my knowledge, there was one issue that shipped late. It shipped late by one week, and it was because of a circumstance where, like, I can't even recall, but it was like the artist took ill or the artist injured themselves or something like that. You know what I mean?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But that is the only time I've ever had something well, I guess pandemic excluding, right? But mm-hmm. that's the only time that a book of mine didn't come out on the day that it was supposed to come out in the stores. And it's kind of like what you said. The process has to move and the thing has to go. Mm-hmm. And you'd rather have it be good and on time than great and late. I mean, obviously I want to be great and on time. Yeah. But it does bother me sometimes, I think, when a book that's supposed to be monthly comes out like every, you know, nine weeks or something. And it's not held to that standard. <laughs> because if everybody had the same nine weeks, everything would look nine weeks better. You know what I'm saying? Like oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. But I, I think it's ultimately that's just inside baseball and the product that you put out is the is the product that you put out and, and the audience deserves to have the absolute best thing that they can have for their money. And like I say, I I don't I don't always hit it. There's certainly work I've done that I'm enormously proud of but it, as most creatives I think you look at it and all you see is the things that you would do differently.
0: It's a never-ending learning process and that's what's good about this industry.
1: The it creative is good, but creative it, industries yeah. in general. It is good, but it's also something you need to be prepared for, yeah. you know? cuz it can be it's just you and the page. It's just you and the camera. It's just you and the canvas. It's just you and the board. You know what I mean? It's it's just you. You're always going to be your own harshest critic and that's a very hard headspace to live your life in my dad would swing his hammer and nail the boards together and the end the house was done and the job was done right you know Mm -hmm. uh and that was it you move on to the next one you know what i mean like that's not what we're doing here and it's never going to be that way and it can be exhausting to just stay in that headspace as a profession all day every day but it's also an enormous gift Mm -hmm. because I make these things up in my head and somehow I get a check sent to me in the mail. (laughs) And if I go to the neighborhood block party, unless there's an astronaut there, I got the coolest job. You know (laughs) what I mean? That means a lot when you have kids and they're like, my dad does this, you know, my dad writes Superman or he writes green lantern. Like those things are unquantifiable, you know? So I certainly don't want to make it sound like it's all dreary and you're a tortured artist, but, uh, but you do have to prepare yourself for that, you know?
0: that um, artistic exploration you talked about earlier it's a necessary thing that has to fuel you as an artist and uh, your story reminded me i used to edit um, and do video production for the uh, department of energy and the national labs and i was doing an edit uh, just a really really mundane edit and i literally had a rocket scientist someone who designs the telemetry for getting warheads from one point A to b- point B. Sitting behind me watching me edit on, I think it was Adobe Premiere, maybe Final Cut at the time and he was just going, oh my gosh this is the most fascinating thing. I literally turned around and said you're a rocket scientist and <laughs> yeah. editing is
1: fascinating to you? Yeah, yeah. But
0: that process of, of going through things, I, I hearken back to your, your statement about you would write a certain thing to try to do everything in dialogue only and everything in exposition. That experimentation and that testing of your ability goes throughout your career imagine those people that were in your class who were know-it-alls and said I, I, I figured everything out who were critiquing the crap out of your stuff where do they have to go they're already done they've you know they've peaked in yeah, college mean, they, think
1: that they think they are yeah it's <laughs> you know, sad that's what I that's what I teach my kids you know I, I only need to have one kind of smarts in this world and that's to know what I don't know Mm-hmm. Right, because if I don't know how to fix my sink I'll call a guy who knows how to fix my sink and I'll watch him fix the sink and I'll learn how to fix the sink but if I don't know that I don't know how to fix the sink I'm going to have to turn off my water <laughs> while I wait three weeks for the plumber to come fix my house you know what I mean Like, right. <laughs> all you got to know in this world is to know what you don't know, you know? And, and as a writer or an artist of any kind you have to go into it knowing you're never going to know <laughs> it's not two plus two is four there's no solution mm-hmm. you know it's just not going to happen. There are writers out there. There are people out there who tell me I am their absolute most favorite writer. There are people out there who wish I had never touched a keyboard, you know. <laughs> and, and that's just the way it's going to be. And so, uh, like I say, it can be a hard place to live in. But also, what a what a wonderful thing to be on a constant journey of discovery. hmm and to know that every time you sit down to your job, literally every single day, I sit down to my job, it is different. There's nothing about it that's the same. And I even go out of my way as a career to foster that as much as possible. And I, you know, early on with the surrogates, it's a very common thing. And I'm not saying it's incorrect, but early on with the surrogates, when I had the success, plenty of people were like, be the sci fi guy. Like, you did it. Just write more sci fi stuff. The next thing I did was a political thriller. And the next thing I did after that was an adaptation of the Percy Jackson and the Olympians intermediate fantasy graphic, fantasy novel, you know, and then I, you know, if you look at Exo man of War and how that character is different from uh, The Flash, which is different from Superman, which is different from Hawkman, which is different from Green Lantern. And if you even look at formats, you know, I do original graphic novels, I do adaptations, I do single character books to come out once a month. I do team books to come out twice a month. You know, I, I try with every project I do to do something that's completely different just within this past year, you know, to give you a rundown. I'll try to work from memory here. I wrote, uh, Hawkman, which is an ongoing series, solo hero, probably the most confusing continuity in the history of comics, right? Like a very continuity dense character. Okay. Came out monthly. I wrote Justice League, which came out uh, every two weeks and is a team book. I wrote Superman Man of Tomorrow, which came out uh, every two months, but were 24 page, self contained, standalone Superman stories, beginning, middle, and end, just like a half hour animated cartoon or something, right? I've written uh, Projects for Bad Idea that haven't been announced yet, but uh, three of them are eight page short stories one's about a detective, one is kind of sci-fi, you know, one is more satirical, so like, this is all in the last 12 months, you know I I did another intermediate uh, novel adaptation, working in a space for 9 to 12 year olds that's an extreme amount of variety (laughs) in one 12 month period, no kidding and I do it on purpose, because every time I sit down, I want it to be different, and I might fail, you know I've had projects that did not come out at all the way I wanted them to come out but I'm trying, and the trying of getting outside my comfort zone and trying new things, I will learn something even from that failure. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of creatives that have, even though I hate the sport of golf, I'll use a golf metaphor. <laughs> uh, I like plenty of sports; golf ain't one of them. But uh, I'll use a golf metaphor. You know, there are a lot of creatives I think that have like one or two clubs in their bag, and they just are excellent with those two clubs. You know,
3: mm-hmm.
1: I want to be good with all the clubs. And so I'm always trying to pick up a different club every time I sit down with a project and keep that variety going and taking those chances and getting outside my comfort zone. And who knows, maybe if I had just been the sci-fi guy all this time, I could be like James Patterson or something, you know, and, you know, he's like the name brand of mystery <laughs> and he's massively successful. And that's what he loves to do. And that's great. But that just isn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to have a variety of. And I wanted to do different things, and uh, that's what I've done. So.
0: When you're going down that path of, of, of different genres and different um, projects, uh, what's the environment like? Are there certain things you go to to help you in the creative process? Music, turn the light down, working at night, working at day, going to certain spaces?
1: Yeah, um, I don't do a lot with music. Um, it's hard for me to hear words. While I'm trying to type words, Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to hear words while I'm trying to read words. Like, even when I read, I'm not a very fast reader. I have to be kind of, like, isolated and quiet, you know? I do do a lot of journaling. My first crack at an outline is always written with a pen in a journal, longhand. And something about that pen touching the page, it just helps things flow. For the most part, I sit in silence and uh, type. (laughs) And there will be days where, like, somebody will call me at, like, 11 in the morning and I'll talk, and my voice will crack, and I'll realize it's the first time I've spoken out loud the entire day. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it can be a very isolating, kind of lonely existence, especially for somebody like me who worked in warehouses and restaurants and retail. You know, you're going to work and you're seeing people and you're talking, and all these kinds of things. You know, it can be very isolating, and that's part of what I love about going to conventions so much. You know, if the weather's nice. You know it's too cold this time of year for this Florida boy here in Atlanta, but uh, when the when the weather's okay, I sit on my porch and I look at the trees and I hear the birds and I just write, you know.
0: Uh, Robert, if someone's not familiar with your body of work, what is the quintessential Robert Venditti work that you would say? Check this <laughs> gosh. <out."
1: laughs> I guess it depends on what you like. I mean i'll I'll give you some of my favorites, I suppose. Like surrogates is a great place to start. I'm still very proud of that book. If you like superhero stories, the Hawkman run that I just ended, which was 29 issues, I'm enormously proud of. The first 12 issues were drawn by Brian Hitch. Uh, very proud of that. Uh, I did a graphic novel that came out uh, two years ago called Six Days. It's a vertigo graphic novel. It's uh, based on the true story of my uncle, who mm-hmm. my family always knew that he had, been killed in action as part of the D-Day campaign, but we never knew where or what happened or what were the circumstances of his death.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I ended up finding that he was part of this uh, battle that was a very Alamo-type battle. Him and 192 other guys were the very worst misdrops of all of D-Day. And they blew their target by such a distance that they were stranded in this French town way behind German lines, this little French village of like 300 people. Mm-hmm. And it was like the only high ground in the swamp where they stayed. And they lived there for six days. And then the Germans, a whole Panzer division had to come through that town to take the road, to get to Carantan and reinforce the coast. And my uncle and these other guys, uh, and the village people together, you know, did everything they could to hold this town. And my uncle ended up being killed in action there. But it's, it's a story based on that. Uh, it's an original graphic novel that I'm very, very proud of. Um, and if you want something recent, you know, coming up this April, uh, there's a new company called Bad Idea uh, that has started up with some of the guys that used to run Valiant. I mean, we could do we could talk a whole hour about Bad Idea if you guys want to have me back on because there's so much that's to. going into it, and it's such an exciting uh, place to be creating right now. But my first story with them is called Tankers, and it's one of their launch titles, and it is a story where the oil industry, knowing that we are running out of oil, has invented time travel for the sole purpose of sending soldiers back in time to divert the comet that killed the dinosaurs. (laughs) So there will be more dinosaurs that live and die to create more oil.
0: It would not surprise me if
1: they're working on that. (laughs) Yeah, so it's uh, (laughs) obviously very satirical. Just like I was saying earlier, unlike any other thing I've ever done, Um, Juan Jose Reap is uh, the artist on it. It's some of the most fun I've had writing comics. I'm enormously proud of it. And that first issue will be out in April. Cool. Uh, so you can check that out too. You know, but you know, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm just at Robert Vendetti. You can, uh, uh, you know, see what I'm up to there and and uh, and check it out. You know, I also have some stuff that hasn't been announced yet, including one project. Uh, well, a couple of things with DC, but one project, in particular with DC, that I'm just dying for them to announce so I can talk about it. Uh, but if you've been listening to this podcast, when it's announced, you'll understand why it's something that I'm the most excited about <laughs> Excellent! I've ever been excited about. So. <laughs> cool.
2: Awesome. Awesome. And speaking of Bad Idea, it's a, it's a very unique company within the comic publishing space. They have not launched just yet because they were slated to launch uh, – at The height of the pandemic,
1: they were slated to launch, I believe it was in March, yeah. And that was, of course, when all the shutdowns started happening. So, yeah,
2: they are going to be working directly with comic shops. Uh, they have limited it to about a hundred worldwide, of which Zeppelin Comics is number six. Well, huh? cool! Oh, no kidding! Oh, yeah, we were early adopters, yeah. You <laughs> nice. guys know about
1: tankers, then, yeah. I think they've had so much interest. I mean, you guys are still number six, but. Uh, they've had so much interest. I think they're like up around 250 stores now. Mm. Yeah. yeah. They, they had, really had originally exciting. wanted yeah.
2: to roll out just like do 50 and then get up to a hundred in the first year. Um, but yeah, everybody's plans went out the window, kind of like, uh, getting punched. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: But yeah, it's super exciting. I hope you guys like tankers. Uh, like I say, and, uh, uh, we're going to be promoting tankers in some really interesting ways uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that stuff.
0: So cool. Thank you, Robert, for your time. Really appreciate it. It was a great conversation.
1: Yeah. Thank you all. I've done a lot of interviews, but not too many like that one. So, uh, (laughs) it was nice, uh, to get, no, in a good way, you know, to get down into sort of the, the nuts and bolts of the kind of thing, you know? So I, I appreciate you having me on to do that kind of stuff.
0: And thank you, the audience, for listening to this episode of Amuse. Please check the show notes for links on some of the topics we discussed. For more conversations with creative professionals, please hit the subscribe button. Until next time, that's a wrap.